Jose Bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. This is Walter Grind Guide in our newsroom, and there has been an attempt, as perhaps you know now, on the life of President Kennedy. He was wounded in an automobile driving from Dallas Airport into downtown Dallas, along with Governor Connolly of Texas. They've been taken to Parkland Hospital there, where their condition is as yet unknown. After that shooting incident, of course, pandemonium broke out. The Secret Service men, well-trained in their job, immediately began fanning out into the crowd, looking for the assassin. They have spread a giant dragnet around the city of Dallas, and uh, they say that they're searching for a white man, about 30, of slender build, weighing about 165 pounds. They say that he apparently shot the president with a 30-30 rifle. The presidential limousine was specially built for such uh, public performances such as this. As a matter of fact, the car is so built that the president sits higher than he would in a normal automobile, so that the crowd can get a good look at him. But, as it turned out today, so that an assassin can also get a good shot at him. Rear Admiral George Berkeley, the White House physician, rushed into the emergency room, and two priests were called to the room. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and joining us, as he will be doing once a month now, is Jeff Belanger, author, noted researcher, television personality, <laughs> uh, just all around fan of the president. Media. Fan of the president. So yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here with you guys, as always. Well, you know, it seems uh, appropriate since your your latest book is Who's Haunting the White House, and we are talking about the Kennedy assassination tonight. And Yeah, you know, that's an event that really, I mean, it, it defined a generation. You know, modern day, we talk about where were you on 9-11. Before that, and people that are a little bit older than us, it was where were you when, when uh, Kennedy was assassinated. It's 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 one of the, the few defining moments a, a generation gets, and it's a, one of those sad moments. And it was on this day 45 years ago, November twenty second, 1963, that the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. We are going to talk about that assassination tonight with our guest, St. John Hunt. He is the son of E. Howard Hunt, the notorious CIA spy who was part of the uh, the Watergate break-in and, and numerous other covert operations uh, during his 27 years in the CIA. We will talk to St. John in just a bit about his book, Bond of Secrecy, and some of the shocking revelations that his father made to him Uh, in his final days concerning the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We also want to hear from you as well, your thoughts, theories, remembrances, um, some of the uh, theories you may have adopted over the years about whether or not there was a conspiracy. Maybe you don't think there was. Uh, We want to hear from you, 508-996-0500. For the record, uh, I don't have an alibi. Well, I don't think you were born yet, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Moniz, where were you? I was born in 67. There you go. All right. You're safe as the resident old man here. 
All right, we, we will get into all of that uh, as well, and we're going to have some uh, some news stories as well regarding the assassination, including one in which one TV network thinks that they've kind of put aside all possibility uh, that there was a conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy. Uh, and, you know, normally when we talk about the JFK assassination, Matt, one year you and I just kind of free-formed off our, our knowledge of it. Uh, and then, again, we had another opportunity to talk with Jim Mars uh, in the past as well, who... Um, Jim couldn't be with us tonight because he's actually at a conference related to the assassination. But it just seems like each year we talk about this, more and more information comes to light. Well, you're going to have more and more information come to light because a lot of people that were involved with it are starting to die off, and you're going to get the deathbed confessions. And, and ironically, the deathbed confession we're going to talk about tonight from uh, E. Howard Hunt actually didn't end up happening on his deathbed. Um, he actually rebounded and was able to give more information to his son as the time went by. So we'll talk about all that with St. John Hunt. If you'd like to go to his website, it's stjohnhunt.com, S-A-I-N-T, not the abbreviation. And, of course, it's linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. Why don't we take a break? When we come back, we will talk to St. John Hunt about the JFK assassination and the other uh, operations that his father was involved with, as well as uh, hearing from you as well. And if you'd like to email us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, we can take your emails all night long. And the chat room is open on SpookySouthCoast.com if you would like to uh, get in there and talk with other people listening to the show at the same time. So we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Simmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way towards the trademark. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Stimmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The president's car is now going past me. The limousine is now traveling at a very high rate of speed. Secret Service men standing up in the limousine. They are armed with submachine guns. It appears as though someone in the limousine might have been hit by the gunfire. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with Matt Costa, science advisor at Matt Moniz, and Jeff Flint. Do you want us to call you guest host or once-a-month host? Or? <laughs> you know, we'll have to work on that. It'll, it'll come to us as we go. Because everybody seems to have a nickname. So yeah, we need to come Jeff. Up with one Jeff is fine. Jeff works. <laughs> and Jeff Belanger is here with us as well. And joining us on the phone line is St. John Hunt. Uh, if you go to his website, stjohnhunt.com, you can purchase his book, Bond of Secrecy. We're going to talk to him about that tonight, as well as the DVD that he has for sale there as well. Uh, good evening, St. John. Thank you for joining us tonight here on Spooky South Coast. Am I missing anybody else over there? Tim and Jeff, and who else is there? And we got two Matts. So Max? Yeah, we have Matt, Matt, Okay, two Jeff Matts, and a Jeff, and a Tim. Well, yeah. how, how are you guys doing tonight? It's a full house here. It's Great. almost as many people as were involved in the conspiracy <laughs> to kill John F. Kennedy. I think I think we're getting pretty close here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so talk to us a little bit about your father, E. e. Howard Hunt. We've heard the name... Uh, linked to all these news stories, uh, you know, over the years. But who who was he as a person? Yeah, well, um, my father's name uh, first surfaced uh, in connection with the Watergate break-ins 
before that he was uh, uh, he was definitely uh, undercover and uh, had worked for the CIA for 27 well almost 28 years before he retired at least on the official level he retired and worked at a uh, at a, a small advertising firm in Washington DC called the Mullen and Company which uh, uh, later turned out to be a coming up after Bill O'Reilly. It's the hang on one second. It's, this happens a lot when we talk about things that we shouldn't. The uh, mm -hmm. the uh, the government kind of takes control of our computer. Okay. No, it's just a technical glitch. Sorry. All right. Well, um, after uh, after his 27 years at the uh, at the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, in at which his in which his capacity was uh, chief of psychological warfare operations, uh, black ops. Uh, uh, head of the Western Hemisphere, which included all of Latin America. Uh, he was um, the, the, the main instigator and uh, architect of the overthrow of the Guatemalan uh, regime in 1954, I believe that was. Um, let's see, what else did he do? Oh, my God. He, um, he was instrumental in the formation of the provisional government. Uh, uh, had the Bay of Pigs invasion been successful in uh, 1961, uh, he was uh, responsible for the first uh, uh, suggestion of uh, the assassination of Fidel Castro. He was instrumental in the assassination of Che Guevara, um, and he was in, in, into all kinds of uh, into all kinds of things. Um, so um, uh, when he retired from the CIA officially, uh, he went to work for um, for the White House as a consultant. Now that job really was, uh, um, you know, head of a dirty tricks operation called the Plumbers Unit. Uh, and they were hired by uh, Charles Colson, who was uh, uh, chief, one of the chief counsels to President Nixon, to take care of all these little paranoias that, that President Nixon had. Um, one of them was to stop the Pentagon uh, papers from, from leaking to the New York Times by Daniel Ellsberg. So there was numerous break-ins at the uh, psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, one of, uh, on, uh, another little project he was working on was uh, the forging of... Uh, false cables linking President Kennedy to the assassination of uh, Vietnam President Diem. Um, he also was also working on uncovering um, uh, some, some dirt or manufacturing some dirt uh, on um, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy's uh, mishaps at Chappaquiddick. Um, he was ordered to, um, to break into the apartment of uh, Daniel, I mean, of uh, Arthur Bremer, who was the assassin uh, or near assassin of George Wallace, uh, to, to plant uh, 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 McGovern election material and also to falsify his diary. I mean, the list just goes on and on. If there was, if there was uh, a bit of nasty work to do, uh, my father was the one to take care of it. And he was in a, a very... Um, uh, a very crucial position because he, he was the he was the guy that uh, would have uh, you know would have lunch in the afternoon with the director of the CIA, uh, um, Dick Helms, for example, and then later on in the day, he would uh, loosen his tie and roll up his shirt sleeves and then go out and uh, and and get down to where the real action was uh, in the trenches, so to speak. Uh, uh, you know, recruiting agents and uh, being a provocateur and. Uh, you know, doing whatever was necessary to to further the ends of whatever operation he was in. Well, St. John, considering, you know, this, this has got to be some pretty top-secret stuff, things that no one was supposed to know about back then. Uh, do you have any idea, and I know he's obviously come clean to you about all the things he's been working on, but do you have any, any clue about how many others may have been involved in these kind of operations? How many other people? Yeah, right. 
Um, I, I think, you know, it was a pretty, it was actually a, probably a pretty small group of people that was entrusted with, with, with some of the darker, right. uh, aspects of these operations. Um, you, you, you had a, a real core group of, uh, a very loyal friends, uh, like, uh, David Atlee Phillips was a CIA agent, William Harvey was a CIA agent, uh, Cord Meyer, uh, my father, uh, and then you had people that worked that that took directions uh, under them, like uh, David Morales, who was a notorious uh, assassin for the CIA's Executive Action Committee, which took care of the uh, uh, liquidation of uh, unfriendly foreign leaders. Uh, Frank Sturgis, who was a mercenary uh, and uh, and a hired gun. Um, Antonio Vesiana, who was who was a Cuban exile. So we we had. We had really a, a small sort of cable of, of uh, sort of a standalone operation of men willing and able and motivated to take care of the dirtier things that needed to be done to further the political ends of those in power. And, of course, these men all viewed themselves as extreme patriots. Right. And so when, the, uh, when, when, when my father was... Um, was brought in to discuss the uh, assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, I, I'm sure he felt uh, it was probably a good idea and a, necess- and a necessary evil uh, to, uh, you know, to keep our country safe from communism. As as everybody knew, Kennedy was uh, was considered soft on communism and uh, was going to withdraw the tr- starting that Christmas was going to withdraw the troops from the Vietnam uh, conflict. Now, as a young man, though, growing up, I mean, how aware were you of, of these things going on? I mean, uh, sure, one day you walk downstairs and G. Gordon Liddy's at the breakfast table, but uh, and aside from that, I mean, did you have kind of an inkling of what your father was involved in, and at what age did it start to, to become obvious to you? I, I had no idea um, what my father was involved in. Uh, his cover during the, his years in CIA was uh, a as a State Department foreign diplomat, so he had, uh, you know, phony... Um, Certificates of uh, you know honorary ten years or fifteen years service in the State Department, and he had his State Department badge and and all this stuff. So when he went to work at Langley, the CIA headquarters, um, you know, I just assumed he was going to the State Department building in Washington D.C. But um, uh, we travel the world. Um, I, I, I've lived in uh, Japan as a as, as a toddler, and then we moved to to South America. Uh, to Uruguay, Montevideo, where he, he he was he was involved in. I mean, everywhere we now, in retrospect, everywhere we lived, there was some sort of political uh, coup d'état or some kind of political unrest that he was there stirring up um, uh, for the overthrow of usually um, leftist-leaning governments, uh, rightly elected by their peoples, but uh, not in the best interest of, of the United States at the time. So. I didn't find out until I was 16 years old when he called me down to his uh, study one afternoon and said that he thought I was, you know, mature enough to to be able to be, uh, you know, to handle the truth. And he told me then he worked for the CIA. Of course, I didn't really know what the CIA meant. He said it was a it was an intelligence arm of of, of the United States government, kind of like the FBI, but over but but only working abroad. And I just kind of left it at that. Uh, a few years later, he supposedly retired from the CIA and went to work at the White House. And um, that was, you know, his cover story there was, was a big lie, too. So uh, what's been difficult for me is, is being raised in a, a series of lies and, uh, you know, feeling that uh, and still not knowing how much of what was going on in my youth was truthful and, 
and all that. It's it's kind of uh, you know it's kind of too late now because it's you know it's he's passed away and but we we remained close through through many of the years, especially during the Watergate time when when I was able to help him. Well, also though, I mean, a lot of it must have been for your own benefit, for your own protection. You know, keep you in the dark, and therefore you can't be any kind of accessory to to what was going on. Yes, exactly. Uh, and of course, that all ended um, the night that his team, uh, uh, his break-in team, uh, uh, was uh, uh, was captured at the uh, at the uh, Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex. He came home late that night and uh, and roused me out of a deep sleep. And uh, from that moment on, I. I I, uh, I I was part of his uh, his um, his his plan to you know I mean he there was no one else he could turn to the house was empty my the rest of my family was in vacationing in London and I was home so I I was involved in the destruction of evidence the uh, transferring of of uh, large amounts of cash from from banks in in Washington D.C. the destruction of uh, the famous typewriter that uh, he used to forge the uh, cables. Uh, falsely linking Kennedy to the assassination of DM and and all that stuff. So that's why my book is called Bond of Secrecy, because my father and I did have this uh, bond of, of secrecy that I, I never told a soul about any of those things until after he passed away. Matter of fact, I even lied for him uh, when I was questioned behind closed doors during the Watergate, invest, uh, the Watergate hearings in 1974. Uh, they showed me photographs of various people, Cubans and whatnot, and, uh, and I was told uh, by him and his attorney to just say I, di I didn't recognize any of these people. So uh, I did a lot for my father that uh, I, you know, I I probably shouldn't have, but um, you know, blood thick in the water. And, and how does I mean, how does he justify at some point? I mean, you take a, an, an event like Watergate. I mean, bugging the, the Democratic National Convention. I mean, how do you? How do you justify that? Even years later, did did he ever come to grips with it? Did he ever have remorse for it? No, he never had remorse for it. What he did have, uh, what he did regret, um, the one thing in his life before he passed away, he told me that he regretted was that the Bay of Pigs invasion uh, uh, was not successful and that the assassination of Fidel Castro had not been a success. And uh, and I just thought that was an incredible. Um, you know, just an incredible statement to make. I mean, here he's, uh, he, you know, my my mother was murdered in a in a plane crash uh, as she was transporting, uh, you know, money and 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 documents uh, while they were blackmailing President Nixon. He and uh, she and my father, and uh, you know, his children had been scattered to the winds. Uh, we had suffered all this uh, stress and uh, trauma related to the things that my father was involved in in his life. Yet the only thing he could really regret was that. Uh, uh, you know, Castro hadn't been killed, and the and the Bay of Pigs hadn't been successful. I mean, I, I just find that uh, incredibly self-serving, and um, uh, you know, but that's the kind of you know people that 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 something like the CIA are looking for people that have no remorse and no regrets. And I think he felt it was his he was being an absolute patriot to be involved in the assassination of President Kennedy and all those other things he did. As, as every as all those other people did too, they felt that Kennedy was a danger to the country. It was better to get rid of him. Well, did he did he feel any remorse for for getting caught at, at Watergate for uh, for that not going through? Um, no, he didn't feel remorse. He felt uh, he felt like he was a warrior, and he had been he had been caught in an operation uh, uh, for his government. Uh, what he did feel was uh, a deep sense of bitterness and uh, and just um, almost. Uh, disbelief that uh, that his government didn't take care of him 
when he was uh, apprehended for what he would what he considered an operation just like any other operation uh, for the CIA it was for the White House but right. he he didn't couldn't see the difference and that started the whole blackmail thing with with Nixon and the and 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 why you know Nixon feared my father uh, if you listen to the the Watergate transcripts uh, Nixon goes on about how we have to pay Hunt because he knows too much and it just goes on and on about Howard Hunt you know he's and I think what Nixon was worried about was that Hunt knew about the involvement of the government in the Kennedy assassination. Right. That's what Nixon was worried about because he used the euphemism for the Kennedy assassination. H.R. Haldeman in his book, Ends of Power, said that whenever Nixon referred to the Bay of Pigs thing, he meant the Kennedy assassination. So, you know, these, these are people that had been cronies all their lives. Uh, Nixon, as, as vice president, uh, was in charge of Operation 40, which... Uh, which, which was a clandestine group of, uh, of rogue CIA uh, uh, contract agents, um, and, uh, and the Executive Action Committee uh, came out of that uh, to liquidate foreign leaders. So, I mean, there was a lot of bad stuff going on. Well, you, you mentioned in Bond of Secrecy that you weren't really a, a huge supporter of the Nixon administration and, and some of the policies that were going on at the time, but here you are dragged into this. You know, what was the inner conflict like for yourself to, to have on one side, you know, this this regime, this administration that you know is, you know, essentially working in the shadows, and, and you also want to support your father? I mean, there must have been terribly con- conflicting for you. Well, it was in many ways, but... Um... I'll tell you the overriding motivation for me. What what really made it very clear as to what what I was going to do uh, was the fact that I had always been looked um, down upon by my father uh, as somewhat of a disappointment. Um, you know, I wasn't a great student. I didn't have aspirations to become a lawyer or a doctor or enter the intelligence field. Um, sort of follow in his footsteps, and uh, I mean, I was uh, I had a, I was uh, a child born with a club foot. Uh, I had double vision. I stuttered, uh, you know, and uh, I had dyslexia and uh, petite mal epilepsy. So I mean, I was just uh, almost, uh, you know, someone that probably my father, in his own way, would have just preferred to, you know, kept locked in a closet somewhere, but. But that night when he came home, uh, I felt was my redemption for all my shortcomings. And so there really was no question in my mind as to, as to any kind of conflict about, about uh, although I was uh, anti-Vietnam War and I had done my part uh, at my boarding school to demonstrate against the war in Vietnam, I had also refused an invitation from my father to join our family at a at a White House function where I was going to be able to meet the president, and my father was very angry about that. But uh, at that moment, um, there was just it was there was just no question in my mind that I was I was going to be the one to help my father in his time of need and hopefully redeem myself. And that is what kind of led to later on in his life him being able to confide in you uh, at least limited knowledge about the JFK assassination. Yes, yes, that that started the whole. The whole what I call the bond of secrecy, um, uh, him him being able to trust me and me never never saying a word to anybody and lying for him under under oath and uh, you know I was uh, I was um, his his two daughters uh, my two sisters from his first marriage to Dorothy uh, they after my mother was killed uh, they never spoke to my father very rarely did they ever speak to my father they they he was just a you know they they just blamed him for everything and I, I was really the only child from that 
that that first marriage to Dorothy that uh, ever kept uh, that worked hard at keeping in contact with my father and visiting him when he moved to, to Guatemala and Miami and so we you know we we had uh, although we were you know we had our differences like most fathers and sons uh, you know he knew I was uh, you know had 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 uh, made some poor choices and had uh, trouble with uh, law enforcement and that kind of stuff uh, he knew that he could trust me and so. Uh, we, we, we tried to get this information out, or I was trying to get my father to bring this information out about JFK and his involvement in it and uh, his knowledge of the conspiracy before he died. But there was just too much pressure, uh, you know, too many enemies in the camp. Uh, and uh, his, his last wish to me was that I, I bring this out after he passed away. And, and so that's what I've been trying to do. And thanks to radio stations like yours, uh, I, I'm able to do this from time to time. Well, St. John, can you kind of take us through that moment where he says to you, I'm going to tell you what happened? Uh, I'd love to hear what that was like. Well, um, I had, let's see, I had flown down. I'd gotten a call from uh, my stepmom, Laura uh, Martin Hunt, who married my dad uh, when he was released from prison in 76 or 8, I think. Uh, anyways, um, you know, I had always gone down and visited, spent time with my father a week or two every couple of years, Thanksgiving or whatever. I got a call from her, and she said, your father's been very sick. Uh, he was, uh, he, he's, um, he's been in the hospital many times with pneumonia. Uh, now he's got gangrene in his leg. Uh, his vascular system is giving out. It doesn't look like he's going to make it, and he's refusing to have an amputation. He just doesn't want to go on with life. And uh, if there's anyone that can that can talk him, you know, into an amputation, if there's anybody that, that he needs more, it's you, St. John. So I jumped on a plane, I flew down there and talked to him in his hospital room and I, I told him how much how much I deeply loved him and how and how how needed he was as a family patriarch and how, how, how much more he had to offer the world and and then he told me that um, that there was some because he was so close to death that there were some deeply disturbing things that he wanted to tell me. Um, well, he didn't get a chance much to talk to talk about it at that point, but um, he sent me a, a cassette tape in the mail, an unsolicited cassette, which you can hear portions of. You can hear the tape on my website. Uh, and, and in it, he uh, he revealed his uh, his knowledge of a of a plot codenamed the big event to uh, assassinate president kennedy and uh... he sent that to me in the mail and i put it in the ca in my cassette player at the time up here in eureka and i i i almost ha could have had a heart attack i mean here here i'm listening to my dad's voice he's struggling to talk and he's short of breath and he's he's he's, he's talking about uh... you know lbj and and people like cord meyer and uh... David Morales and Frank Sturgis all, all plotting to, and himself, all plotting to assassinate Kennedy. Uh, I called my dad, I told him I got the tape, and he said, I, you, you know, you should fly down here and we, we should discuss this. And, um, you know, he was in a hospital bed uh, in a darkened room at, in his master bedroom. Uh, the house was empty, and um, uh, he had a, a memo pad with him. Uh, you know, a, a large legal yellow memo pad, and I sat down beside his bed, uh, brought him some root beer, and uh, and sat down and um, and just quietly waited for him to gather his thoughts. And uh, he told me that um, he said, as you know, I've always maintained uh, that I have had no knowledge of the uh, the death of President Kennedy, and I I, I never wanted to to uh, 
you know, to do anything that would that would uh, hurt my family or, or or my country for that matter. But he said at the time that uh, he was uh, he was driven by you know by patriotism and he thought it was the right thing to do. And then he he wrote out for me the chain of command. He goes these these were some of the the key people involved in the in the in this conspiracy. He didn't say it was the only conspiracy, but he said it, in this conspiracy. So my take on that is that there may have been several conspiracies floating about um, uh, in, a, in a compartmentalized way that perhaps he he was involved in one conspiracy and then over here in another you know part of the, that world there was something else going on maybe with some other people because you know there was an attempt on Kennedy's life in Tampa uh, the month prior to Dallas and also one in Chicago. Uh, that I don't think my dad knew about the one in Chicago, and perhaps he didn't know about the one in Tampa. But the one he he was he was involved in uh, was the one in Dallas. Of course, that was a successful one. But my feelings were just I was speechless. I mean, I, I just was was absolutely speechless. Of course, I had heard the cassette already, so I knew that you know that he had uh, that he had knowledge of this. But he wanted to write it down for me, and he wanted you know to to bring it all out. Of course, we were constantly interrupted by family members. They were very suspicious of me being down there and of uh, our, my, my father's and mine closed-door sessions, and they were always interrupting us. And my father absolutely would not speak about it in front of anybody else. Um, you know, his children would have, would have found it. His, uh, his second family would have found it horrifying, and his wife would have divorced him. So uh, there was, you know, it, w it was a very um, intense moment for me to, to know that, that here I was being put in a position again through my father's deeds and actions, uh, you know, to 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 have this knowledge, uh, and I carried that around with me for a couple of years before, before I brought it to the press. Of course, he he lived another year and a half, and I had to wait all that time, having his files and his and his memorandums, which are all available on my book. If you go, if you go to my website and you download my book, it's only five ninety nine, but it has all his handwritten memos, the chain of command, and everything, uh, photographs, uh, you know, personal notes. Uh, it's uh, it's really interesting, but th that was a that was definitely a difficult time for me. I mean, I was I was just beside myself. I didn't even know what to say to him. Well, we actually have the the audio that you received in that cassette, which is also available on your website, Saint John Hunt. If you just go to the website and click on the testimonial page, uh, it will immediately load this audio up, uh, complete with a transcript as well. But we're going to play it for everyone here, uh, so that they can hear your father in his own words, okay. describing uh, what he believes went on. I heard from Frank that uh, LBJ had uh, designated uh, Cord Meyer Jr. to uh, undertake a larger organization while keeping it totally secret. Cord Meyer himself was a uh, rather favored uh, member of the uh, Eastern aristocracy. He uh, was a graduate of Yale University and uh, uh, had uh, joined the Marine Corps during the war and lost an eye in the Pacific fighting. I think that uh, LBJ settled on uh, Meyer as, a, uh, as an opportunist, Perrin like himself, Perrin, and a man who had very little left to him in life ever since JFK had uh, had taken Cord's wife as one of his uh, mistresses. I would uh, suggest that uh, Cord Meyer welcomed the approach from 
LBJ, who was, after all, only the vice president at that time. And, of course, could not uh, number Ford Meyer among uh, JFK's admirers. Quite the contrary. As for Dave Phelps, I knew him uh, pretty well at one time. Uh, he worked for me uh, during the uh, Guatemala. He made himself useful to the agency uh, in Santiago, Chile, where he was uh, an American businessman. In any case, his uh, actions, whatever they were, came to the attention of the Santiago station chief. And uh, when his uh, resume became uh, uh, known to uh, people in the Western Hemisphere Division. He was uh, brought in uh, to uh, work on uh, Guatemalan operations. Spurs and Morales and uh, people of that uh, ilk stayed in uh, apartment houses uh, during the preparations for uh, the big event. Uh, their addresses were very uh, subject to change, so that uh, where a fellow like uh, Morales had been one day, you're not necessarily associated with that same address the following day. In short, it was a very mobile uh, uh, experience. Let me point out at this point that if I had wanted to uh, fictionalize uh, in Miami and elsewhere during the run-up for the big event, I would have done so. But uh, I don't want any uh, unreality to tinge this particular uh, story, or the information, I should say. I was a bench warmer on it, and uh, I had a reputation for honesty. I think it's essential to refocus on what this information that I've been providing you, uh, and you alone, by the way, consists of. What is important in the story is that we've backtracked the chain of command up uh, through, uh, up through Cordmeyer and laying the, uh, the uh, doings at the doorstep of LBJ. He, in my opinion, had a an almost maniacal urge to become president. He regarded uh, JFK as a as he was, in fact, an obstacle to achieving that. Uh, he could have waited for JFK to finish out his term and then, undoubtedly, a second term. So that would have put LBJ at the head of a long list of people who were waiting for some change in the executive branch. And that, to me, is the key, St. John, uh, is what he says at the very end, he, that uh, JFK was an obstacle to uh, LBJ's, as your father said, almost maniacal urge to become president. Yeah. Um, you know, people, people say, well, why would somebody like Johnson, who was already vice president, uh, uh, ever want to do something like that? And that's that's the answer right there in that question, is that he was only the vice president. Johnson was uh, uh, well-known um, to be, um, I mean, I'm not saying he was more corrupt than a lot of other politicians, but he certainly was, you know, unparalleled in, in some of the things he was involved in. Uh, the list is, is long. Um, he was connected with uh, 
you know, land deals and, um, you know, voter fraud and, uh, uh, you know, um, even some murders uh, uh, prior to. He also run against Kennedy in the 1960 uh, for the Democratic Party nomination and lost. Uh, and Kennedy realized what a what a potent uh, adversary Johnson could be, so he, he brought him on as vice president, but um, but uh, but kept Johnson out of uh, out of the limelight and away from Washington by sending him on missions to 33 countries in the 35 months that he was that Kennedy was pre- uh, was president. And most of these vice presidential missions that he sent Johnson on were ceremonies and funerals and that that kind of stuff. And Johnson was just furious. Uh, Johnson realized that uh, as vice president Kennedy. Uh, to Kennedy, uh, Kennedy would have probably won a second term, and that would have put Johnson pretty much out of the out of the running for uh, for uh, for his party's nomination as as president. Uh, he probably would have been too old, and you know people would have thought of Johnson as sort of this buffoonish vice president. Uh, he he did, uh, according to my father, have a maniacal desire to become president, and of course Johnson was a hawk. He was. Uh, he was, uh, you know, part of the military-industrial complex. Um, he uh, definitely was pro-Vietnam War, and uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staffs and uh, the, all the, the the brass at the military and uh, in the big business industries that 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 builds these war machines were all uh, very frightened of uh, of Kennedy. And Kennedy's speeches uh, in the last six months of his life uh, were all about world, pe- true world peace, and. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, pulling the troops out of Vietnam and being peaceful and coexisting, you know, on one planet. And Ke- Kennedy was really a true visionary, and he was really way ahead of himself because the times uh, were not, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was, he scared a lot of people. They they weren't going to let that happen. They thought, oh my God, we've got this president, and he's he's going to take us down the road to. Uh, you know, to where, where communism is going to is going to win the world, and he's got to be gotten rid of. Well, we are talking with uh, Saint John Hunt, uh, the son of E. Howard Hunt, and uh, you can check out his website, Saint John Hunt, uh, in order to get his book, Bond of Secrecy. And you mentioned, well, your father mentioned Cord Meyer. I mean, here's, you know, if LBJ wants to to forward this plan to to take out John F. Kennedy. You know, Cord Meyer is kind of a good guy to get involved in that plan because not only did he have the means to get the job done, but he uh, he also had a bit of an axe to grind as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, Cord Meyer uh, was married to a Philadelphia socialite uh, named Mary Meyer, and uh, she uh, JFK had been using her as his mistress. Uh, they had been um, you know seen many times in uh, uh, the. Uh, and uh, I guess he was. Uh, she even introduced President Kennedy to uh, LSD and smoking marijuana. Mary Mary Meyer was was part of this kind of leftist circle of of, of people, uh, uh, along with Tim Leary. So she got her acid from Tim Leary and turned President Kennedy onto it, and that started leaking out. Mary Meyer was murdered uh, shortly after President Kennedy was killed. Um, and uh that that mystery has never been solved uh, of course uh it's well known that uh the chief of counterintelligence of the CIA James Angleton a very mysterious and dangerous figure in the in the intelligence community um uh was uh, had himself and two two of his agents break into her apartment and uh, and uh, go through her personal belongings to steal her the infamous uh, Mary Meyer diary, much like the Monroe diary, the Marilyn Monroe diary that was that went missing after Marilyn Monroe's murder. So, uh, 
So uh, they were just trying to tie up loose ends. I think Mary Meyer was very very aware that uh, that President Kennedy was not sh shot by a lone crazed gunman, and that he was definitely killed as a result of a conspiracy. And she was probably frightened for her own life. Now, we have a few minutes before the, the news break uh, here, and, and we definitely want to keep talking with you, St. John Hunt, in the second hour uh, about such uh, topics as, you know, especially this, this idea of the three tramps and whether or not uh, you believe your father was one of these three tramps that are uh, linked to the Kennedy assassination. But uh, also on your website, you have the DVD is now available that features some of the footage uh, that you recorded with your father. Uh, no, the DVD is, a, is, of, a, is of a personal uh, uh, interview with, uh, of myself being interviewed, okay. um, and it's, it's, a, it's a personal recollection of, of the life and times uh, I had and shared with my father. Uh, and I also t uh, talk about Watergate, uh, my upbringing, uh, some of the traumas I went through as, as a result of, of, of these events, historical events. And uh, I discuss the assassination of President Kennedy. But uh, what I am working on is a 10-hour... Uh, ten hours of uh, the last uh, interview my father ever gave, which I, I had recorded on a, on a camera in Miami, and um, that's that's my next big project. Okay, well, definitely keep us up to date uh, on how that's progressing, and uh, we'll talk to you hopefully again when that comes out. Now, we got about a minute here before the news break, uh, but what's the one thing that you want people to take away from this discussion tonight? You know, beyond just the fact that he is, you know, giving this information. Um, okay, well, I think what's important here is that, um, God, there's so many important things. <laughs> well, I'll, tell you, um, but, I'll tell you what, we'll give you some time to think about it, and we'll, we'll, we'll pose that question again to you when we come back. Because okay. I, I want people to realize here that we're not just talking about, you know, a CIA assassin, we're not just talking about a spy, we're talking about a human being. Yes, And, and somebody who was a, a father, and somebody who was loved and missed as well, so. That's right. All right, well, we will take a break here. When we come back, we will do our weekly news segment, The Week in Weird, except we're going to give it a little bit of a twist. It's going to be you know, some, some JFK news that was out there uh, today on the news wires and on this, the 45th anniversary of, of his assassination. And then we'll talk more with St. John Hunt. If you want to check out his website during the break, it is stjohnhunt.com. You can purchase the ebook Bond of Secrecy, there, as well as the DVD as well. And when we come back, we'll talk more with him. We'll also talk about the other theories uh, regarding the assassination, and we'll Take your calls, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And if you'd like to shoot us an email, you can do that. We have capability here at the studio. It's SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Give us an email. We'll read it to St. John on the air. And uh, we'll be back with more after the news here on Spooky South Coast. All right. Thank you.
Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Jeff Belanger sitting in with us, as he will do uh, once a month. That's the plan, right, Trent? Yay, yay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know, we're, we're very excited and thrilled that you chose this show to join us. And it's not just because, you know, you were on your way back from an event and we were happened to be on the way home. No, you're not on the way home, actually. As a matter of fact, you're far out of the way. No, I love you guys. It's, it's great to be here and, uh, you know, always enjoy hanging out and it'll be great to be here once a month. And, and what we'll do is we'll try to keep it not such a somber tone as, you know, on the 45th anniversary of the assassination <laughs> right. of the president. Probably not the most ideal place for me to start because, uh, yeah, I have a hard time being serious. But uh, you're doing a great job I so am. far. I'm well medicated. Thank you. So uh, it doesn't hurt, hurt that you're probably tired from driving like 15 hours already today. Yeah, no, I'll be all right. We'll talk about that later. Okay. And uh, we are talking about the JFK assassination here on the 45th anniversary. And we'll get back into the discussion with St. John Hunt, son of CIA agent, CIA spy, E. Howard Hunt, and uh, also the, the uh, inspiration for the character of Ethan Hunt on Mission Impossible as well. So we'll get into all that a little bit later on with St. John, but you can go to his website, stjohnhunt.com, if you want to check out more information about him while we proceed here with what we normally call the Week in Weird, and, and Matt, you don't even have to worry about playing the, the music because I think that would be somewhat disrespectful to the subject matter of tonight's show. Our first story comes from Eric Bland, who writes for Discovery News, which is, you know, the news about whatever's on the Discovery Channel. A team of experts assembled by the Discovery Channel has recreated the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Using modern blood spatter analysis, new artificial human surrogates, and 3D computer simulations, the team determined that the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository was the most likely origin of the shot that killed the 35th President of the United States. While blood spatter analysis existed in the 1960s, modern innovations had greatly improved its accuracy and the amount of information that can be gleaned from drops of blood. So uh, the first shot that entered Kennedy's back and exited out of his throat, the second shot entered the left side of Kennedy's head and exited out the right side, spraying a nearby officer, agent, and car's interior with bodily material. Kennedy was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. at Parkland Hospital. And, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested an hour and 20 minutes after the shooting, uh, widely believed to have fired the shots that killed Kennedy, he was later shot and killed by Jack Ruby before he could be brought to trial. So the Discovery Channel uh, examined a number of the conspiracy theories surrounding the shooting for their November 16th special JFK Inside the Target Car uh, to explore the theories and determine where the shots most likely came from using modern forensic science. A mock-up of the Dallas, Texas crime scene was set up, including the depository, the grassy knoll area, and other nearby landmarks. Artificial surrogates of Kennedy were placed in a car, Sharpshooters then shot the surrogates from the model depository, the grassy knoll, and four other plausible locations. Uh, an independent expert, forensic investigators were brought in to examine the simulated crime scene, and both had no idea what the experiment was uh, for or that it was a reenactment of the JFK assassination. They found a simulated gunshot wound to the head that closely matched the wound Kennedy suffered. Most of the simulated body material had spattered forward into the car, consistent with a shot that entered the back of the head and exited toward the front. There was some back spatter, material that flew back in the opposite direction of the bullet trajectory, but not much. The general lack of back spatter and the preponderance of spatter in another direction are two of the clues, among others, that the investigators used to pinpoint the origin of the shots. So here they are, you know, being able to recreate this and, and using these dummies. They also used a 3D model of the crime scene, uh, that they animated to take into account the angles, the distances, the wind speed, and everything else. They actually looked at video from the uh, Abraham Zapruder film, 
uh, believed to be the most complete video of the shooting because of its clear view of the motorcade and the height it was shot from. Uh, only two of the 486 Zapruder frames actually show Kennedy being shot. Uh, computer graphics expert Doug Martin highlighted the red parts of the frames and the blood resulting from the wound and plotted them onto the computer simulation to see where the fatal shot came from. We might never know if Oswald pulled the trigger, but when you look at the wind pattern, the spread of the debris, the angles, and the distances involved, it's consistent with a shot from the Sixth Lord Depository, Martin said. So he said if uh, this technology had existed back in the 60s, it would have put a lot of conspiracies theories to rest. So... I mean, how much can we take that into account? Uh, no matter what they do, they're not going to be able to totally recreate the situation of that day. Uh, the biggest problem with this is they can't recreate Oswald's shot. I mean, without having Oswald actually firing the gun and firing the actual Manlicker Carcano that he had, there's no way that they can actually recreate that completely, in my eyes. But, you know, if they want to talk about that's the trajectory where it came from, fine. But as he said, it doesn't necessarily mean that Oswald was the shooter. All right, well, Matt Moniz, speaking of conspiracy theories, you have a, a little bit of an update on that. Yes, from the vvdailynews.com. Forty-five years ago today, then-President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed in Dallas. Yet the tragedy remains one of the most controversial events in history and has spawned countless conspiracy theories. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, the President's Commission on Assassination of President Kennedy, better known as the Warren Commission, and the U.S. House Select Committee on Assassinations all investigated the killing and all reached the conclusion that it was carried out by Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald was a former Marine who defected to the Soviet Union but later returned to the United States. While the FBI and the Warren Commission concluded that Oswald acted alone, the House Select Committee said that Oswald killed Kennedy and was most likely as a result of a conspiracy, although probable members of the conspiracy were never identified. Despite the conclusions of the FBI and the Warren Commission, the Internet and search for JFK assassination displays nearly 150 million, oh, sorry, 1.5 million results, many of which are chock full of conspiracy theories involving the Central, Inte Central Intelligence Agency the Mafia, the Cuban leader Fidel Castro, and even then-Vice President Lyndon Johnson. None of the conspiracy theories have been proven, yet the feature film JFK, released in 1991 by director Oliver Stone, served only to further fictionalize the event and ignore the facts discovered in the three government investigations of the assassination. Even before the film's release, Stone was attacked in mainstream media for taking extreme liberties in the film. In a 2003 Gallup poll, three-quarters of Americans thought that there was more than one man involved in the Kennedy assassination. A Daily Press online poll this week with more than 160 respondents showed that 73% of the population believed there was a conspiracy behind the JFK assassination. Hmm. Well, I mean, and that story, too... Uh was written by Ryan Orr of uh, the VVDailyNews.com, and, and he also has a number of facts attached to that story. Uh, just a little sidebar with uh, some information, the facts versus the myths in the Kennedy case, and that's worth taking a look at if you have a few minutes of time because he talks about the, the time needed between the shots with that uh, bolt-action rifle, 5.5 seconds needed to fire the shots, and, and he goes through the differences between what the JFK film presents 
and, and what actually was reality. Now, uh, Matt Costa, you know, we talk about the grassy knoll and and what happened there, but you have a story that actually comes from eyewitnesses that were there on the grassy knoll. I do. Uh, from azcentral.com in Dallas. It seems as if the gracious couple has told this story a thousand times, how how the crack of an assassination, assassin's bullet struck the president just a few feet from where they stood. Sometimes it's a reporter or an author, but often it's a curious citizen who hopes Bill and Gail Newman can uncover a sliver of evidence to buttress their own theory about the, the death of John F. Kennedy. Who wouldn't want to hear from a couple who were so close to the at- so close to the assassination that it was arguably arguably the most scrutinized in American history, particularly as a tragic event marks its 45th anniversary on, well, today. Uh, at the time, we we were both 23 years old, and we didn't realize the part in the part in history that we played because we were the closest people to him when the third shot rang out," said Gail Newman in a recent interview. Now as we grow older, we do realize that there is something that we will be a part of for the rest of our lives. The Newman settled in, into a spot on the lawn on at Daly Plaza, just below the infamous graf, grassy knoll a few minutes before Kennedy's motorcade glided by on November 22, 1963. Their two young sons, four-year-old Billy and two-year-old Clayton, were in, were in tow. The presidential motorcade arrived in Daly Plaza by turning right on Houston Street and left on Elm, where it passed by the Texas School Book Depository. As the president's black convertible came into sight, Bill, Bill Newman said he heard what he thought were fireworks. But as the limo, limousine drew closer, Newman said that he saw he could see blood on Kennedy and Texas Governor John Connolly. Ten, twelve feet in front of us, the third shot rang out, and that's when the side of his head flew off. And I could remember seeing the blood, Bill Newman said. I turned to Gale and said, that's it, hit the ground. It seems like everyone around us was running up the grassy Knoll Hill, Gail Newman said. The the police officers had their guns drawn. Do the couple still feel? Uh, do the couple feel a second gunman fired from the grassy knoll? I told I do tend to want to lean in that direction that it was a conspiracy, meaning more than one person was involved. But so far, no one has been able to come up with concrete evidence, says Bill Newman. But that's that's a key phrase right there, you know, that the, the shots fired out and everybody turned and ran up the grassy knoll and the, the, the police officers drew their guns heading in that direction because everybody in that area assumed that that's where the shots had come from. Right. So and, and I think it was Unsolved Mysteries that did all kinds of acoustical uh, recreations. Uh, they had the, the tape recording of the shots from the motorcycle well, cops radio. Wouldn't people run away from the shot, though? Well, I think or they were trying to, they were trying to get the assassin. Uh, I, you know, I always thought, too, you know, you'd want to run away from gunfire, right. but I guess when somebody shoots at a president, you want to make sure you catch him. I, I don't know. I'm just going by, you know, what they say was the reason behind it. You could you could also argue what you're saying, run away from the run away from the, the sound but, of the yeah, I mean, if the, the police officer are pointing mm-hmm. in that direction, their guns, so. So uh, just, uh, you know, another eyewitness testimony from people that were there that, doesn't necessarily jive with what the Warren Commission was telling us. And, you know, Jeff, we're talking about 
an assassination now that's 45 years old. But there's even been threats on President-elect Barack Obama's life as well. Yeah, record amount of threats. Uh, this is from the Washington AFP. Americans reflected Saturday on the presidency of John F. Kennedy, who was assassinated 45 years ago, as once again a young, inspiring president is headed to the White House. President-elect Barack Obama has often been compared for his lofty ideals and charisma to the late JFK, who was shot dead in Dallas, Texas in 1963. But Obama's appeal in his historic election as the first African-American U.S. president may have, have many people worried about his potential threats on his life. Uh, he is inspirational. He's an historic figure. He's the first African-American president. But there is also, because of that potential for stirring up social unrest, that also makes him a target, said Scott Stewart, senior terror and security analysis for uh, Stratford, uh, publisher of Geopolitical Intelligence. The threats to Obama are nothing new in American politics. Four American presidents were assassinated, Abraham Lincoln in 1865, James Garfield in 1880, William McKinley in 1900, and, of course, JFK. Uh, President Kennedy's brother, Robert F. Kennedy, and civil rights leader Martin Luther King were both gunned down in 1968. There have also been assassination attempts against Andrew Jackson, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Gerald Ford, and Ronald Reagan. It's not only JFK, it's Robert Kennedy, it's Martin Luther King. We have had a history of violence against inspirational leaders in the U.S., explains James Thurber, professor of government at American University. Thurber said he recalls the era when the Kennedys and and King were assassinated and pointed out similarities between then and now. I do remember the time, and it is very difficult. It is very similar, except that Obama is even more inspirational than Kennedy in terms of turning people on and bringing people in from the Republican Party to vote for a Democrat, he added. It's more historic in some way in the sense that Obama is African-American. Obama uh, received the earliest ever Secret Service protection for a presidential candidate in May of 2007, 18 months before the election, due to threats and uh, to the large crowds he was attracting at campaign stops. Two plots have already been thwarted in Colorado during the Democratic National Convention and recently in Tennessee where two white supremacists were arrested in what authorities said was a plot to conduct a string of armed robberies and murder 88 black people in a spree to culminate uh, in a suicide attack on Obama. Uh, Obama's high approval ratings, set around 70% before he takes office at the White House, are also a source of concern. He just captured the heart and minds of American people, said Alan Lichtman, a history professor at American University commenting on the public's high expectations, but we are all aware of the danger that comes with that, particularly for the first time uh, in an, uh, with an Af- African-American president. Sorry, I flubbed the end. No, that's fine. I mean- <laughs> uh, no, I mean, but you, you look at this, and you're right. I mean, the guy's popular. Um, he's, he's different, uh, let's face it, and we don't like different. Uh, Americans don't like different. And, uh, you know, the threats already. Um, one of the things I've noticed, too, I mean, before the election, Obama just always had that really winning smile, always, you know, mm-hmm. big grin. And since the election, I noticed, especially the, the first week after uh, the election, boy, I didn't see a lot of smiles on his face, you know. I think it's uh, the, the gravity of the situation is uh, is really hitting him. And it's just like, you know, God, like like two like two dogs just uh, just hitting you right in the face with this kind of thing. You know, it's uh, it can be tough. And I, I'm worried for him. I really am. Well, you know, the job is great in theory, but then once the uh, you get that holy crap, I'm actually going to be the president moment, right. uh, that's when it all starts to come down on you. But also, I mean, if we believe these theories that are out there and these conspiracy ideas, and we'll talk more about that in a moment with St. John Hunt, but, you know, this was because of his policies that he was putting in place, and, and those who know history know that JFK kind of bit the hand that fed him a little bit. Once he got elected, you know, he, <laughs> right. he made these promises to those that he needed to make promises to in order to Mafia. get that position. Mafia. Oh, excuse <laughs> me. Sam Giancana. Oh, oh, God, excuse me. 
But and then of course you know it comes back to bite him later on that you know all of a sudden let's just theorize that he had the help of you know the the mafia in Chicago to get elected especially since there was dead people voting for him. You talking to me? <laughs> but anyway, it, you know so now you know the first thing that happens when they get into office is you know Bobby Kennedy, Attorney General, starts going after the mafia. Uh, it's kind of uh, it, it kind of be like you know if if Barack Obama suddenly went after you know. Uh, all of those that helped get him elected, all those special interest groups that helped him get elected, which, you know, the mafia is not a special interest group. <laughs> well, I guess. They have interests know. that are special. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, why don't we take a break? Uh, we can <laughs> finish watching this video. And when we come back, we will talk more with St. John Hunt, who is the son of CIA spy E. Howard Hunt. We'll talk to him about his father's uh, potential involvement in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and we'll find out more of just exactly what this shadow government is uh, that came to the forefront that day. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silent, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should bear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help and the tremendous task 
of informing and alerting the American people. The response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confidence that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. All right, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and guest host for the evening, Jeff Belanger. Good evening. And we are, you know, talking about the JFK assassination, but we have, you know, John F. Kennedy talking about the ideas of secret societies and, and how secrecy within a government can lead to its eventual takedown. And uh, our guest tonight is St. John Hunt, and he knows all about secrecy within the government because his father, E. Howard Hunt, was a CIA agent that was involved uh, with all of this, and, including knowledge of the assassination of JFK. And, and St. John, you say in the book Bond of Secrecy that's available on your site, stjohnhunt.com, you mentioned the idea, your father mentioned the idea, too, that this is the, this is the day that the shadow government kind of took over. Yeah, well, you know, um, you asked me a question before the break, and uh, that, that question was, what do you hope that the listeners will take away from this, mm -hmm. this radio show? And um, I'd like to respond to that before sure. we get into anything else. And I, I would like to say that I hope that the listeners will understand that being born in the greatest country in the world uh, holds with it certain responsibilities that maybe people just some people just aren't aware of and I think the responsibility that we each have as citizens of this country is to maintain uh, a, a, a level of accountability for our government uh, from our government and uh, a level of truthfulness from our government and we should question authority at all times and we should make ourselves uh, uh, you know aware of um, as, as many things pertaining to uh, who our representatives are and how they are representing us as we can. I think that's the responsibility that we as free citizens need to uphold in order to keep this country a free country. And I think that's something that has been sorely lacking 
in the in the American people for many many years. And of course, when people give up or lose interest in what's going on in government, government will uh, take over and and make great. Uh, uh, changes uh, before you know it. You wake up one morning and all of a sudden uh, you don't have the right to uh, free speech or you know and these kind of things. So 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 what I'm hoping is here we have a new a new president elect, and I really hold some some very uh, uh, you know so there's a lot of parallels between um, young President Kennedy and young President elect Obama. Uh, president Kennedy came into office. Uh, with a war uh, that he didn't start, the Vietnam War, um, with uh, a lot of hawkish, um, uh, you know, cons- uh, conservative right-wing people running things, and um, and here we have Obama coming in, inheriting a war that he did not start, nor did he approve of, uh, with a lot of hawkish uh, right-wing neoconservatives. Uh, you know that had been running things and i i think um there's a lot of parallels to be drawn and i just i just pray that uh that uh, obama's given enough time to to change the some of the things that uh, this country has been involved in but um go ahead with your with your question actually real quick uh st john just for the record if uh, any of those right-wing crazies uh called you asking uh to enlist your help with uh, anything <laughs> just you know just putting that out there no, um, no. Although you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that um, I'm I mean, you've got experience, con- sort of. I'm, I'm not a big conspiracy nut or a, you know theorist or anything like that. I just I just know what my father told me, and then I've done my own little research on on things, trying to trying to find out what the truth was about my dad's involvement. But um, uh, just before that Rolling Stone article came out, um, my house was broken into, and all my you know nothing was. Stolen uh, my DVDs or TVs or you know jewelry that I may have had uh, was all left alone. I, all my paperwork and files had been gone through. They were looking for, I guess they were looking for uh, maybe the memos that my father had given me. Yeah, and they weren't there. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh no, they weren't. I, I was already smart enough. I'd been schooled by uh, by a professor up here at HSU to uh, to disseminate that stuff uh, as far away from my house as I possibly could, and that's what I did. So. Uh, you know that was that was just kind of creepy. It seems a little bit ironic, actually, when you think about it. That you know your your father was doing, partaking in events like, you know, say the JFK assassination, if he was involved, and, and definitely with Watergate, because of this patriotism and this you know sense of responsibility he felt to his country and, and his government. But at the same time, these are two of the major events that made uh, the people of the time and people after that suspicious of the government and, and disaffected by the government. Yeah, it's 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 ironic how that works out. I mean, when you when you when you're blinded by your own patriotism and you lose sight of of of, of what the bigger picture is and and what what could happen if 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 something went wrong or or if people the general public found out about about what you're doing. I mean, all these assassination attempts, uh, you know, foreign leaders and all these overthrows of governments, Iran and. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, look what it's look what it's caused. It has absolutely caused the the absolute negative effect that that this that 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 you know that those people responsible for that were trying to to create in the first place. So you know, it's like almost so sh- short sighted of these people that 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 arrange these kind of things. It's like you know, don't they realize that that if any of this gets out, and and of course. You know, stuff does get out. Truth will will find a way. You know, uh, light will. You know, I mean, it, it's it's all it all comes out sooner or later. 
that it's going to it's going to create um, a world of distrust. Uh, look at Watergate. I mean, ever since Watergate, uh, you know, we just have not trusted our government officials at all. Yeah, no, and I don't think that's gone away either. I mean, I don't think any. Even even those of us who were, were born, you know, barely before or during Watergate, I, I don't think that's ever gone away. I mean, even the 80s, the 90s, even when things are going good, you can say, yeah, but I still don't totally trust them. Well, and because in the time since then, it's become almost like a, a haphazard way to present the government of, you know, just having secrets about everything and you can't trust them about anything. Right. Look at the show like The X-Files, you know, talking about the paranormal to, yeah. the, to the point of such a high level of – of government secrecy that, you know, you're just naturally ingrained not to trust any yeah. part of the government. That, I swear right. that show was so successful because everybody looked at it and said, oh, I believe all this. I, I could buy into any of this, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, in a way, that's good because we, we, we as citizens have to maintain a certain level of, of, of you know, the, the idea of, you know, questioning authority, which, which I think was why the, the JFK assassination is so important because up until that time, we, we, we had been the saviors of the world, uh, saving the world from, from, uh, from, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, Hitler and, and, uh, and, and, and Russia, and we were the, uh, you know, carriers of, of, uh, freedom and democracy, and we just had absolutely blind faith in, in, uh, in, uh, you know, and our politicians, and I think uh, the, the politicians and people like uh, you know J. Edgar Hoover and uh, Lyndon Johnson realized that that they could really put put one over on the American public, and it took years before some of this stuff started coming out. And you know, thank, thanks to radio stations like yourselves and and tireless researchers like uh, Mark Lane and uh, um, oh Bernard Fensterwald, uh, you know uh, Sylvia Meager, all these people that that wrote you know about that. Hey, look here, this is something's wrong here with the Warren Commission report. You know, people need to wake up. And it took it took years and years of dedicated research by people working alone, hours and hours and weeks and months on end, going through transcripts and. You know, pouring over documents and suing, uh, you know, the Library of Congress under the Freedom of Information Act and all this stuff for, for all these little pieces of the puzzle to come out. I mean, I just, you know, my hat's off to all, all, all of you guys. Well, it was one of those researchers that actually identified the photo of the, the three tramps and recognized your father, E. Howard Hunt, as, as potentially being one of those three tramps. Yeah, that's true. And um, I was uh, making a phone call uh, in the early 70s uh, from, a pay, from a pay phone in uh, and uh, uh, lo and behold, on the telephone pole uh, adjacent to the phone booth, uh, that uh, there was a, a black and white Xerox of uh, of, a, uh, of an announcement of a of a um, uh, of a of a lecture being given by Dick Gregory, who was uh, up until that time a comedian, but he later became a political activist. And it said CIA murdered JFK, and on and on that uh, uh, on that black and white Xerox was a um, two pictures of my father and a picture of one of the tramps. And this that's the first I'd ever heard of it of, of any of it. And it said E. Howard Hunt at what uh, Watergate hearings 1972, you know, uh, E. Howard Hunt in Dallas 1963. And I just you know I mean I just you know I just I, I pulled it off and I I kept it. I still have it in storage somewhere. But that's. Uh, that was the first I, I had ever heard of that. I mean, it clearly looks like in the photographs you present in the book, uh, Bond of Secrecy, and on your website, uh, stjohnhunt.com, you can clearly see, you know, it's the same nose shape, the same shape around the mouth, the same lines, you know, coming from the nose into the mouth. Yes, it, it, it's amazing. And, it, and then there was a book published uh, uh, some years ago by uh, uh, Alan Weberman uh, called Coup d'etat in America. And in it, there's a trans, there's a, there's a, uh, a photograph of of that of that tramp, the old tramp they call him, 
uh, and uh, there's a transparency overlay of of my dad. And if you overlay that onto the tramp photograph, I mean, there's so many points where it fits. And according to some analysis done by uh, you know photographic uh, uh, forensic photographic experts, uh, there's uh, uh, all the main points like the distance between uh, the eyes, which never changes, and the distance between uh, um, you know the tip of the nose and the lip, and all these kind of things. They all they all lined up exactly to the photo of the tramp. But beyond that, when I look at that photo of the tramp or any of the, any of the tramp photos, I just get a gut a kick in the gut that just it just sends shivers up my spine. I just I just look at that and I go. Oh my God, that's my dad. <laughs> and you would know better than anybody. And, and for those who are unfamiliar, of course, the three tramps were uh, arrested in the train yard uh, just a short distance away from Dealey Plaza after the assassination. And these are three guys who, you know, not all of them would look like the stereotypical riding the rails kind of hobo. Uh, they were kind of well dressed for that type of uh, lifestyle. Yes, and uh, they were paraded through Dealey Plaza uh, from the uh, railroad yard behind the grassy knoll and the picket fence and then uh, taken in for, for questioning, but then almost immediately released, and there was no record of their, uh, of their, of their arrest. Uh, they, you know, the official arrest paperwork uh, was never filed properly, and it somehow mysteriously disappeared, if there was any. And, um, you know, people go, well, oh, well, that whole tramp thing has been put to rest because uh, people have come forward and said yeah, they were the three tramps. Well, in fact, there's been at least four to six people that have claimed to be the tramps, two of which have claimed to be the tramp that looks like my dad. One guy named Gus Abrams, and there was another guy named Chauncey Holt that both have come forward and said that they were the tramp that, that people say look like my dad. So, I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't know who it was, but it, it looks like my dad to me. Um, I think his involvement in Dealey Plaza, and I'll tell you this, this is what I think he, his involvement in the assassination was. I think he was a point man sent there to make some payoffs, has been uh, uh, testified by Frank Sturgis and Marita Lorenz, who said that, uh, that my father met them at a motel in Dallas the day before the assassination and handed an uh, envelope full of money to Frank Sturgis uh, for the guns that he had brought up from Miami to Dallas. Um, also, um, my father was a, a sniper in OSS, so I believe he may have been in Dallas to... Uh, to um, to set up the the points of firing for the triangulation of fire from from the three points, the uh, the sixth floor or the fifth floor of the uh, of the book depository, uh, the the picket fence behind the grassy knoll, and then the Dow Tex building. And I think my father was expert in laying out a plan of uh, well, here are the best you know locations for for the shooters. They in, in the assassination of a president, you're never going to ever allow only one sniper. To have his one or you know one chance at shooting you were always going to have a backup if not two backups that's just i mean that's just in the training manuals there's there's just no way that you're going to everything of such importance is going to be or you know on the shoulders of one single gunman that's just it just doesn't work that way and uh i'm just you know looking back at all the claims and all the theories and all the different stories that have come about uh, you know what that situation was what you're talking about is exactly what is often overlooked by people that you know even somebody like oswald who if he did act alone you know it's it's such a once in a lifetime type of shot that even taking that approach is is setting yourself up for failure if you're only going to have one person taking that one or two opportunities to shoot 
Yeah. Well, I, I spoke with a gentleman on the phone earlier today uh, on another show, and he called in and said, well, the preponderance of evidence uh, clearly shows that uh, there was one, you know, one bullet. And I said, well, then how do you explain the fact that the, that the bullet fragment grains in, jo- in Governor George uh, John Connolly's wrist and leg uh, uh, way more than what was missing from the pristine bullet found on the stretcher of Parkland Hospital? You know, I mean, that's the preponderance of evidence. Clearly shows that there was more than one gunman and more than one firing, you know, place. And even the the, the latest House Select uh, uh, Assassination, uh, you know, committee here. Uh, I think the Rockefeller Commission was was the last one to review all this evidence. There, there, uh, they came to the conclusion that yeah, that in fact would have had to have been, you know, two two uh, two gunmen from from two different locations, and that's as far really as they as they were willing to take it. And we can. Take a whole other show sometime where we tear apart the entire Warren Commission. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> right. Do you think we'll ever get to a point, I mean, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, where it all comes out and they say, yeah, okay, that was another time and, and yeah, it was an inside job? Well, um, I think my father's uh, confession, his deathbed confession, and the information that he gave to me is pretty much um, the closest thing I think we've had and may well ever have to an absolute admission of government culpability in the assassination of President Kennedy. And I think uh, the way the media, a lot of the mainstream media has downplayed this uh, only reinforces the fact that, uh, you know, that when the truth finally does come out, which I believe this is the truth and it is coming out, it it has come out and and I will still continue to push for for more media attention on this. you know, it's it's just uh, you know people aren't aren't paying as much attention. I mean, there's so much going on in the world right now, and there's so much going on, you know, just in our own economic crisis and with our new president and uh, the the two wars we've got going and the the threat of other you know countries. I mean that this uh, this has lost some of its significance, but certainly not any of its importance. Well, we are due to have all the uh, all the Warren Commission's. Uh information that they were given is due to be released uh, 50 years to the date of the conclusion of the Warren Commission, which will be coming up in about five or six years here. So maybe, you know, there'll be documents there that will help, you know, quantify what exactly it was that your father told you. Yes. Yeah, I hope so. That would be great. All right. And we hope to be talking to you on that day. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so, too. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, St. John. And if you would like to go to his website, it's stjohnhunt.com, where you can purchase his book, Bond of Secrecy. Also, the DVD is available, and he'll have all the updates there as well. And in just a little bit, you're going to be on Coast to Coast with Ian Punnett as well, right? I am at 1030 Pacific time. And so uh, we hope everybody listens to that because, you know, we're not supposed to plug other radio shows here, but we we, gotta, we all get along. Yeah, we all get along. And, and you did such a great job with Ian that first time. I can't wait to hear uh, what happens tonight. Uh, it'll be great to talk to him. And it's been wonderful talking to you guys. You guys uh, run have a great show, and uh, you're you. excellent interviewers, and everything is just uh, you, you just run a very smooth and professional operation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. We'll talk to you real soon. All Thank right. you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Matt, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we'll wrap up the show. We'll talk about you know some of the other theories that are out there, and we'll take your calls, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast.
is St. John of the Sinners, St. John Hunt's band. And you can go to their MySpace uh, and you can listen to more of their music as well. And again, his website is stjohnhunt.com, linked up right on the front page of spookysouthcoast.com. You can purchase the ebook Bond of Secrecy, and you can also purchase the DVD there as well. And, and you know, Jeff, we've talked about conspiracies here many times on Spooky South Coast, and the key is all you need for a conspiracy is just two people just making two. a plan. Yeah, actually, or <laughs> in the end. Only one of them has to be real. The other person could even be hypothetical. But one of the questions I, I, I've, I mean, I've thought about this because I knew we were doing the show, and you know, the idea of uh, conspiracy theories, we we kind of need them as a society. You know, sometimes you have these acts that uh, we just refuse to believe are random. We refuse to believe some guy went nuts and said, "I want to kill the president." One Lee Harvey Oswald, and then someone killed him days later. You know, because out of you know anger for what he did but we need we need the conspiracy theory to believe that there's there's uh there's there's uh, there's control in a universe that's seemingly out of control that it it can't be random trust me i see conspiracies at every turn i mean everything is forces conspiring against me matt's right here he's right (laughs) here (laughs) i always feel like something is like conspiring against me i i I can never just take things as being fate no that's me i'm actually i'm (laughs) holding you down (laughs) yeah thanks sorry keep me in check (laughs) but you know, at the same time, there have been the lone nuts. I mean, sure. I, the, I forget his name. The, the Frenchman, Matt Moniz, that, I think. No, the Frenchman that, tried, that killed, that took the shot at McKinley. Right. Uh, you know, he was pretty much certified as a lone nut. And, and I think that you know we, you know, John Hinckley, these type of people, it does exist, but it, it's it's so much easier to believe in the plot. Right. It's so much easier to believe because it's it's. In terms of the assassination of a president, you think it's something that's beyond comprehension that it could even happen. Right. Here's you know, here's one of the things I learned. You know, having spent some time at the White House, not a lot, when I was working on uh, one of my books and talking to some of the staff, I came to realize because I one of the questions I asked uh, the chief usher there is, is I said, I can't believe that you voted for the winner uh, every time. This guy's worked there since 1967. And I said, how do you bring, and even if you did vote for him, he's got to have done something that really upset you. And I, how do you bring that SOB coffee? And he told me something that really struck a chord. He said, we, we serve the presidency. And it just it hit me that they think of the pre- president. The president isn't George Bush or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or anybody. It's, mm-hmm. it's a concept. It's a concept that's, that's bigger than any one person could ever be, uh, which makes these people famous, legendary. You know, they appear on our money and things like that. And so when one is actually assassinated, like JFK, uh, I think it, it, or even an attempt, I mean, remember Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, I mm-hmm. remember that, uh, being all over the news, and someone almost got him. I mean, he was hit. You know, it, lucky he, he wasn't killed. And I think what it does is, it, it's, even if you didn't vote for him, even if you vehemently despise that particular president, you say, whoa, wait a minute. It, even though I don't li- that's my president. I mean, it, it strikes a chord with all of us that, wow, it's, it's, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable it, in a big way. And sometimes the, the, the crazies can get together and have their own conspiracy, like Squeaky Foam taking a shot at Gerald Ford. Right. You know, she did it because Matt Moniz, her boyfriend at the time, told her to do it. <laughs> right, right. Sometimes crazies conspire together and start a radio show. <laughs> that's true. But-, <laughs> but the JFK one, and, and this is, you know, I was just doing, um, I consulted the great Oracle earlier tonight um, for about six seconds. And uh, just looking up some of the various conspiracies as to who was behind the JFK assassination, the list is long and storied, and it uh, ranges from uh, Castro, Lyndon B. Johnson, the Mafia, the FBI, the CIA, the Freemasons, uh, even Rome and the Catholic Church. Uh, the list goes on and on 
Um, the, now, the Catholic Church, that one interests me. Why would they want to take out JFK, the first Catholic president? You know what? I, I have the Pope on my speed dial. Give mm-hmm. me one second. Okay. Let, me, let me ring him up. Uh, yeah, right, the first Catholic president. Um, maybe not, not a good Catholic. I don't know. Um, but but it's just <laughs> – well, but, but, I mean, it's just – hey, it's a conspiracy. That one doesn't hold nearly, nearly as much water as uh, – some of the other ones. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the stories go on and on. The ideas are out there. And, and as St. John said to us, you know, there could have been numerous conspiracies in play. Right. It just so happened one of them worked. <laughs> one, yeah, one of them won. I wonder if the others were upset. <laughs> like, I'm sure, oh. like, Sam Giancana was, uh, you know, like, yeah, right. you know, throwing his spaghetti dinner over. Like, was that, oh. I'm sorry, was that was that stereotypical of me to say that? <laughs> well, I only it, know, it, all I know it, about the mafia is what I've seen been, in movies. It, it could have been Linguini, right? could have been Linguini. Fair enough. All I know about the mafia is what I've seen in movies and, and watched on The Sopranos. So <laughs> right. what, what do I know? But, you know, I, I think that this is key, though. What, what we were talking about with St. John Hunt is that, you know, until these documents come out, and even then, even when they do come out, we're not going to know the whole story. Right. All we're getting is a bunch of, mi- you know, mixed-up conjecture where essentially we're creating our own ideas, our own conspiracy right. theories based on what, you know, he presents to us, based on what Oliver Stone, what Jim Mars, what all these different – Dr. Philip Melanson before he passed away. Matt Moniz. Yeah, I mean, everybody's coming with their own little piece of the puzzle, and everybody's putting that puzzle together in their own way, and it's not going to end up looking like what's on the box in the end. I do think a day will come. I don't know if it'll even be in our lifetime uh, where it all gets released, and 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 it, it it'll have to be so far away from the event where they say, "Yeah, that was another time. You know, that was, America was a different place then, and here it is." That's why the Warren Commission picked fifty years because they figured that you know after fifty years after the wrap up of the actual investigation, every person that was involved in the Warren Commission would be dead. And therefore, could no longer be held accountable for their mistakes. Except St. John Hunt. Yeah, well, <laughs> right. and we're basically just waiting for, for Gerald Ford. Not that I'm wishing Gerald Ford death, right. but I, I mean, he's the last remaining member of the, the Warren Commission. Yeah. So when that 50-year window comes up, you know, uh, if he's still around, he'll have to answer to that. Great topic. And I think it's something that we'll definitely be talking about more in the future. Uh, it was just when we looked at tonight on the calendar and we said, you know, it's it's the 45th anniversary. We need to do something. We need to do something different. And I'm glad that we were able to to give a little bit of a humanistic perspective. Yeah, right. To if there was a conspiracy in place, these were just people. Right. And they might have thought they were doing what was right. Hey, uh, you know, that's right. And, I mean, look at 9-11. Uh, not, uh, those guys flying the airplanes did what they thought was right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you're not going to go all Bill Maher on No, 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 no. Horrible act, despicable. But, you, you know, you, you have to know that they believe that. Mm-hmm. And and that's, you know, that that's what it takes. You have to believe in your gut what you're doing is right. And, and I'm sure he did think of himself as a patriot. And, and But St. John did hit it right on the head where, you know, here they are trying to save a government, save a, a belief in America, and all they ended up doing is they're actually deteriorating that. Right. But their own belief in America and their America, not, not in uh, an America that includes – other perspectives, which is well, counter to the whole idea, isn't it? In my America, every Saturday night is Spooky South Coast time. Darn right. And yeah. next Saturday will be as well when we're here back at 10 o'clock. Uh, we're actually going to be putting together kind of a little bit of a different show. Uh, normally, we bring you a nice, entertaining program every week where we talk about the paranormal, and we don't ask for anything in return. Well, next week we are. Next week we want your money. We want your donations because uh, we're going to have with us Wayne Morrison, the organizer of the Rock for Christmas benefit that is coming up in the first weekend of December. There's going to be a December 4th show at the uh, Foxwoods uh, Hard Rock Cafe. And then there's going to be one at the Newport Blues Cafe on that Sunday. And they're working on trying to fill something out on that Saturday. We'll have the updates next Saturday night uh, here on Spooky South Coast and as well at Rock 4, the number 4, 
xmas.com where you can get all the updated info. But this is going to be a great rock concert with a bunch of guys Matt Moniz, I'm sure, has gotten hammered with before in the past. <laughs> <laughs> lots, of, uh, lots of old rock stars from the 80s that you know and love, and, and guys like uh, Eddie Money, uh, Terry Aloas from XYZ. Uh, uh, who else? Old man fashioning a canoe. <laughs> we are no. naked Indian. No, it's going to be a great concert that Wayne's putting together, and it's going to do a lot of good, raise a lot of money to help needy families. We're going to have Wayne in here. We're going to try and get any money on the phone, a bunch of these other acts calling in, uh, some people that have taken part in Rock for Christmas in the past, and we're going to want you to call up and make a donation as well, drop them off here at the studio, whatever. We'll see if we can get Wayne to give away a couple pairs of tickets as well. So make sure you tune in next Saturday night at 10 o'clock for our Rock for Christmas benefit show. Then we'll be back in December with plenty of paranormal stuff on the plate, uh, including, you remember the UFO hunters, Matt Moniz, from, a, from the Sci-Fi Channel show, not from the History Channel show? Yeah, I know them. And the guys from NiSpy. Well, they've got a new program coming out, and it's going to debut in December, so we'll talk to them. Talking uh, to Oliver? Absolutely. And uh, we'll talk to Oliver and Ted. We'll have them both on as we did in the past. And we'll also be doing uh, a show coming up on the Fearing Tavern investigation that we conducted. And we'll tell you how you can get in there and do some investigating as well. So, Real quick, I just want to send a big shout-out to the girls from Spies who took me out to Hockamock Swamp last week, Indian Rock Bridge. Thank you very much for the uh, the wonderful tour. And uh, look forward to doing many paranormal things with you in the future. I know they're listening tonight. I hope their husbands aren't, though. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> no, they're great girls. We, we investigated the, uh, the Lizzie Borden house with them. Yeah, and they're, right. They're an excellent team. And, you know, they're, they're fun, too. And that's yeah. what's important is you want to go out and do these investigations with people that you can trust, but also people that right. you can be yourself around. And that's what we do here each week. We try to be ourselves and talk to you about the paranormal. We'll do it again next week. So until then, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Jeff Belanger, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that is...